you know, I, I said it last, uh, last time when I was here in May, and I'll say it again. You know, the four, four years we were here at uh, Valley Hope, a part of the congregation, it, they were massive years for us. Um, you know, so it, there's, there's a part of us that it, it does. It feels like coming home. Uh, so it's just, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you for welcoming us and, and inviting me to, to be a part of, of opening up God's holy word again this morning. Um, you know, there's some things that happen in your life that will just stop you in your tracks. Uh, things that knock you off center, like losing somebody you love, um, stories of tragedy, of human suffering. I mean, did, did we honestly wake up again this morning to another shooting? Is, is, is it, does that break anybody else's heart that another shooting, that phrase is now just part of common parlance? If you didn't, there was another shooting in Texas yesterday. Another one. Or what about the hurricane that's barreling down right now on the Bahamas, now a Category 5 storm? There are things that happen in life that just change things forever. And in those moments, whether they're, they're massive like that or whether they're particular to you or your own story, when those things happen, there is something inside of us that recoils and says, that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be, right? It violates something, something so woven into the fabric of reality, into the depths of our own soul that, that you know what, you don't even have to believe in God to see those stuff and say, that's not right, right? Now, we know it violates the story of God, the life as God has designed it to be, and it, but it highlights how much of this world is still broken, still corrupted by sin, and because God has made us for life with Him, and, and whenever we are confronted with the ugly realities of life apart from Him, then, then we're revolted, we're grieved, we're pained, and we're wounded by it. There's a reason this stuff hurts. And it's in those moments when the deck of life lurches under your feet and the, as the waves of the storm crash in, you, you look for something to grab onto, to stabilize yourself with. You look for an explanation. You look for something or someone to blame. You look for something to medicate the pain just so you don't have to feel the uncertainty of it just for a couple of minutes even, just a little while. But that impulse to, to reach out, to search for answers or to escape is in us because God has made us with an instinct for hope. God has made us for an instinct for hope. C.S. Lewis famously says in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, creatures are not born with desires, impulses, right? Desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no explanation in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You see, the desire, the impulse 
for hope, toward hope, is not just a biological defense mechanism. Our longing for hope means there is a real destination for that hope. There's a real place that it is reaching toward. And I'm not talking about wish fulfillment or the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about hope. Real hope. Hope, a present confidence that a new future will manifest to replace the old, sad, and broken one. Hear me again. A present confidence that a new future will manifest to replace the old, sad, and broken one. So where do you look for hope? Where do you reach out for when things go wrong, when the waves come crash in? What do you look to for stability, for answers? I have a pretty strong hunch that, that there's many of you that bear the wounds of grief, of life, of pain, or maybe even wounds of placing your hope in the wrong thing, in the wrong place, a broken relationships, a substance, or, or maybe this morning you've walked in the door and, and you don't have any hope left. You're, you're just in despair. Well, the good news is, is that the story of God, his rescue plan of salvation testified to in Scripture, is not merely a recollection or a retrospection on what God has already done in the past to repair relationship with humanity and, and deal with sin. It's not simply about our personal salvation either, although definitely it has to do with part of that. But God is still moving forward in his rescue plan to a new future. And in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, God lets us in on where this story is headed. And spoiler alert, God is going to win. Now, before we move on, I, I hope you'll permit me a pet peeve and forgive me for it and give me some grace. There's something really important that we need to address about the last book in the Bible. It is not Revelation's. It is revelation. There's only, it's actually only one revelation. Uh, sorry, that, that's, just, that's just me. That's my stuff. Forgive me for that. But, but the entire thing is actually just one single dream or revelation made to the apostle John by the Holy Spirit. So, so God is revealing to John this magnificent vision how he will bring a victorious close to human history. And he's going to do it by defeating all of sin, all of evil, all of suffering, and even death itself. So the book begins with John receiving a visit from Jesus. Hello. And Jesus instructs John to write down all the things that he's getting ready to see. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we're given these letters to seven leading churches of John's day, most of whom were dealing with active persecution within the Roman Empire. But then from chapter 4 on, the majority of the book is John's record of what God shows him regarding the end of time. Now, so Revelation is a fascinating but sometimes scary book, right? Christians have spilled all kinds of ink trying to untangle the mysteries to decipher the precise time and the date and the end, when the end is going to happen. And, and you know what? It's important to understand that faithful Christians can come to different interpretations of Revelation but we should never become a divided house over that. Or as singer-songwriter and biblical scholar Michael Card says, he says, we shouldn't be dogmatic about things the Bible isn't dogmatic about. And the nature of the writing in Revelation doesn't leave room to be dogmatic. 
It's not that it's unimportant. It's not that we shouldn't discuss it, study it, uh, wrestle with it. But, but let me tell you what I mean. Like, like different sections of the Barnes & Noble, right? It's got little placards. You know, over here is the romance section and the nonfiction section. And there's the children's section with all the, the toys in it. You know, the Bible is a library of various types of writing. You know, you've got historic narrative, you've got poetry, you've got letters, you've got gospels, you've got prophecy, all kinds of things. And Revelation represents a kind of ancient writing called apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature is a style of writing that uses this rich poetic imagery and symbolism to reveal God's good future and the end of all things. You see it, you see this kind of writing in the second half of Daniel, too. Um, and it's the poetic imagery and the symbolism that makes it tough to just nail down precisely what's being said. Because it means apocalyptic literature, it's, it's going to have layers of meaning. It's, it's, it's often obscured in images that aren't common to our modern eyes and, and our culture. And the fact that it's symbolic means we actually may not have enough information to fully understand what's being revealed. You think about the prophets, when, when they get this vision of God sitting on his throne and they try to put it into words, I think these realities are so big and wonderful, words just don't do them justice. They, they, words can't contain uh, the meaning and the beauty and the power. But, but, God has given us this revelation. God has provided this wonderful vision of his future for a reason. And, and, it's, and that reason isn't to confuse or divide the church. And I think it's fundamentally not about unlocking facts about the future, although I think it gives us a glimpse of that. But the fundamental purpose of Revelation is to inspire faith in the God who wins. I think that's the fundamental purpose, to inspire faith in God who's going to win. So, but that said, you know, when you give it in a revelation, you know, you can explore the meanings of the four horsemen, the seven seals, or the trumpets, or the bowls, or you can decode the numbers, the reoccurring numbers like four and seven and twelve, the mark of the beast, and dragons. Wow. And I'm not going to be advocating about any particular framework, uh, like pre-millennial, all the tribs, post-pre-millennial, all that. I'm not going to do any of that. Because the whole point of the book is to stir hope. It's to stir hope in the God who makes all things right in the end. A hope that you and I are called to live into today, presently. So to that end... You get it? End. We're at the end. Thank, thank you. Appreciate that. I got kids. Dad joke, you know. Sorry. To that end, I invite you now to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21. So grab a Bible. Switch to it on your phone. Either way. But let's look at it together. Like I said, a majority of the book is describing how God has completely and thoroughly brought a righteous and final end to evil, to sin, in the work of the devil. And so now, at this point, in chapter 21, he will inaugurate the good, eternal reign of the rightful and victorious king, Jesus Christ. And this king is marching home from ultimate victory on the battlefield. And as he takes his throne, this is what John sees. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Just reading that. Just just reading that is enough to make your world-weary heart long and ache for more, for hope. But, but to truly appreciate what God is going to do here at the end, we need to re- actually return to the very beginning, Genesis 1. Genesis, is, it's the very beginning of God's story says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of the primordial chaos, God creates for the purpose of establishing a place and a time for people to enjoy righteous life with God and with one another. This is what you and I are made for, life with God and with one another. But as creation and and our capacity for loving relationship becomes corrupted by our rebellion, sin becomes that genetic defect of our souls, the unraveling of the fabric of reality that manifests itself in every kind of human tragedy, personal and corporate. So that's why when we see God's world not working like it's supposed to, when we get the news of a shooting or of a hurricane or of a death or of a diagnosis, our souls ache and they, they, they hurt because we are made for life with him and one another. So all along, God's story, his plan of salvation has been working toward a moment when everything will be restored back to its original design. And here in Revelation 21, we see the moment where God does just that, a new heavens and a new earth, because the old heavens and the old earth have been dealt with. They are now replaced, not with an eternity sitting on puffy clouds and hospital gowns playing harps. They're replaced with a newly perfected heaven and a newly perfected earth. Imagine your favorite places, your favorite foods, your favorite recreations, the truly good things that you've experienced in life, they will exist as the furniture of eternity on a new planet Earth in its pure and perfected form. Imagine that. Also in Genesis 1, God brings life-giving order and purpose to creation out of a swirling, chaotic nothingness, right? The Bible says everything was formless and void and that God's face hovered over the waters, right? And in the ancient Near East, waters or sea was a symbol of disorder, of chaos, of sin, of everything being broken. 
And let me tell you, if you've ever been, caught, been to the beach and caught in an undertow, you know exactly the kind of chaos that waters can truly bring. And it's no wonder that we gravitate toward the power and the unpredictability of the ocean as a metaphor for the, when things go wrong in our own lives, when doubts and struggles bring our own storms. But now at the end of all things, the sea is no more. How often do you dream of a life without the, the sea, without the stress, the anxiety, the burden? Like Jesus on the lake, God speaks with the power of creation to calm that storm forever. And then in the next verses, it's, it's the covenant relationship language that should grip your heart. Language that crops up again and again throughout God's word to describe the binding nature of relationship with a steadfast and a loving God. First, it's the language of marriage. In Genesis, God established man and woman in the image of God. Then God builds covenant relationship into society as man and woman are brought together in marriage to do life together with God. Both the physical and emotional intimacy there are but a foreshadow of the eternal union that we will enjoy with God. And that's why the fundamental purposes of our marriage is to put God's steadfast covenant on display, uh, his relationship in a way that the husband and a wife, both necessary parts of bearing the full image of God, stick together for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, because it shows the world a God who sticks it out with us no matter what. And see, all weddings, all marriages are meant to point forward to this wedding, this marriage, a forever marriage between God and his people, symbolized in the dwelling place of the new Jerusalem. You know, you get married and you, you, you buy a house to live together, right? And that's exactly what God's doing here. He's providing a home, the new Jerusalem, where they will never be separated again. And then the marriage metaphor, it, it comes up repeatedly in the story of God. First to testify to God's faithfulness to covenant relationship, but then to illustrate humanity's tendency to adultery with other gods, to turn their back on the God that they promised themselves to. But now with sin and death no longer in the picture, this great wedding day comes to seal the joy of life with God and his people forevermore. But then the second thing, the, the way covenant relationship comes up is, is the language that we see in scripture. Here, verse three again, I heard a loud voice saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. There's no longer any sin separating us from God. The dwelling place is with man. God's dwelling place is no longer a temple or even just one group of people. God will be with all of his people. I will be your God and you shall be my people. That is the Bible's repeated refrain of right relationship with God. It came up at Mount Sinai's wedding day, so to speak, in Exodus 19, where God uses the language of you shall be my treasured possession. And again in Jeremiah 31, looking forward to the Messiah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And now here at the end in Revelation, we get a glimpse of God's eternal fulfillment of this promise as well. Because that's been the point all along, God re renewing life with him forever. And, and then maybe the part that grips us the most, all the destructive 
destructive consequences of sin that gets in our face every day. All sadness, all weariness, all injustice, all suffering, all addiction, all loneliness will be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. From the deepest personal guilt to Holocaust-sized tragedy, all pain and suffering will be no more. And get this. How close do you have to be to someone for them to wipe tears from your face? You not only have to be physically close enough for them to reach, reach your face, you have to trust someone enough for such a tender act. And this is how close God will be. That he will dwell so close as to wipe it all away. And then the king speaks from the throne. Words that you and I need to preach to one another all the time to keep this hope in front of us. Behold, I am making all things new. All Things. There's no tragedy. There's no abuse. There's no addiction. There's no suffering. There's no pain or loss that God won't make right. And we can't know precisely what making it right might look like, but we can trust the God who hasn't failed to get it right yet. The God who himself knows tragedy personally, who endured terrible human suffering and rejection, who grieved when his own friends died and were facing death. He knows how bad it is. He knows what it's like, and he is going to make it all new. Now, I know some of you this morning are carrying griefs that are crushing the life out of you. Or maybe some of you have the roots of bitterness woven so deep, you can't even picture life now without feeling that, that, that sickness. Some of you are living with the pain of a death. Some of you, I know, are brokenhearted over issues that break God's heart, like preserving life in the womb or, or racism or, or sexism or, or violence or gun violence or abuse or politics, complex issues that don't have easy answers, but they keep you awake at night, burdened by them, burdened for answers. But friends, all these things and much, much more, God will finally heal and redeem and make new in ways we couldn't even possibly imagine. This is where God's story is going, friends. This is where the story of humanity, of existence itself, is going. And therefore, this is where we find real hope. Not, not just wishful thinking, real hope. And it's in the God who will do this. And Him, and all that He will make right. In a letter to the persecuted church, Peter writes... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A living hope. A hope inextricably attached to the resurrection of Jesus where the finality of death is defeated for real and now moves forward forever into life eternal. This hope is a present confidence to which we can cling today in the midst of our anxiety and our sadness and our injustice that says God is going to make it right. 
And you too can have confidence in him. Even if you don't have answers, even if it doesn't feel right, if you don't understand why tragedy was allowed to happen to you today, even if you're covered up in grief, even if you experience injustice or feel like there's nothing that will ever change or make a difference, you can cling to him. You see, hope is a present confidence in God and in his good future. And when you understand your story as part of God's story, even the biggest losses are now put into the context of an eternal reality. And when you set that pain and that suffering next to eternity, God's eternity, that means, one, you can let your grief and pain be as big as it really is. Because God is always going to be bigger. You don't have to pretend like it doesn't matter or that it shouldn't matter because there are pains and wrongs in this life that we should grieve, that we should say that's not right. When I was serving in a church in Virginia, I did the funeral of a dear saint whose husband she was married to for over 60 years. And she kept saying, you know, I know I shouldn't feel sad. He's in a better place. And I said to her, I said, Yes, I believe completely he is in the arms of Jesus. He is in a better place. But that's no reason why you shouldn't grieve the husband of 60 plus years. Such pain is either going to go inside and, and, and eat us away, or it can come out into the light where it can be dealt with and healed. So we can let our grief be as big as it is because God is always going to be bigger. But secondly, it means that you and I can grieve with real hope, knowing that God will make it right. And this is why Paul can write to the Roman church who are facing horrible persecution. We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. You see, God's love and the Holy Spirit are present realities in the heart of the follower of Jesus. Friends, we've got really good reasons to hope. But hope is a habit. In fact, hope is often a habit more than it's a feeling. You see, living in a world where the news cycle and social media stream bad news to us instantaneously and all the time, we have to keep this glorious vision of Revelation 21 before us again, again, and again. Because we must read the story of God repeatedly so that our stubborn and weary hearts are reminded of just how faithful it is. Our hope rests in Him and His steadfast love, not in our ability to stir up a feeling of hope. That's why the Psalms regularly call the one who is suffering to wait on the Lord. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false words have risen against me. Violent. He's dealing with a storm. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait. For the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So how do you cultivate a present hope in God's good future while, while we wait, while we are confronted with pain and suffering? Well, one, you keep showing up 
here on Sunday mornings. You keep showing up for worship, even when you don't feel like it, even when you're weary and tired, because we need each other. We need the body to preach this vision to us when we don't have the courage or the strength to do it ourselves. But also look for beauty. Turn away from the ugliness of the world. Turn away from it again. And where we, uh, and, and where we get to live, we get all kinds of beauty we get to enjoy. We get an abundance of it. But dwell on beauty. Because in nature and in art and books and music and true friendship and beauty, we get to dwell on the goodness of God himself who has woven beauty into creation. Remember, when he created it, he said, it is good. And that goodness, the, the corrupted by sin, is still visible. And it still draws our hearts and our eyes heavenward to the Lord, who creates the new heavens and the new earth. But you know what, friends? Nothing will stir your hope more than sharing the hope of Jesus with others. You know, with a living hope in God, you and I have an endless reservoir of courage because when you know how your story is going to end, you can boldly share your story as a testimony to God's story, knowing that regardless of how the person is going to respond, the end of the story is that God is going to win. And let me tell you, people's hearts are dying for hope today. Invite them to put their hope in the Lord. If it's been a while since you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, I encourage you to read them again. The depth of the Christian faith that's illustrated uh, in those adventures, they're not just for kids, right? One of my favorite parts is the very last paragraph of the very last book, The Last Battle, where Narnia comes to a cataclysmic end only to be brought into a new and glorious beginning. And the characters, the children are standing before Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure throughout the Narnia books. And Aslan is introducing them to this new beginning. And it says this. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We're destined for that. We are destined for things so great, so beautiful, that no one can write them. God is making all the sad things of this world untrue. And God is going to win. He is going to win. We are not just passing through. Friends, eternity begins today. And if you happen to be here this morning and you've not clinged to Christ as that living hope, if you've not reached out to him for that new birth, then all you have to do is say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my need of you. I confess my sin. I need your mercy. 
Give me new life in you. And friends, you will have a living hope that will never end. So may we, may we go on trusting in God's perfect faithfulness. May we go on resting in the truth that we are His forever. And may we go from here with the confidence that frees us today to live to His glory and to the blessing of others. Would you please pray with me? Father, we come to you as a weary people. We're sick and tired of the pain and the suffering. We're sick and tired of the conflict and the loss. We're sick and tired of the suffering and the death. So Holy Spirit, refresh us this morning in a present hope, a confidence in you and in who you are and what you have done and are doing and will do in the future. Grant us rest. Grant us a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, of life with you forever. And then grant us also, God, the courage to put that vision out before others, to share that vision with a a sin-weary world, a vision of you, of the grace of God that meets us where we are and that promises to make it all new. Grant us a present confidence, Holy Spirit, in your good future. And we look to you for that this morning in the power of the Spirit and in the strong, strong name of Jesus. Amen.